Our text for this message is taken from Job 19, verses 13 through 27. He has alienated my family from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have gone away, and my closest friends have forgotten me. My guests and my female servants count me a foreigner. They look on me as if a stranger. I summon my servant, but he doesn't answer, though I beg him with my own mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. I'm loathsome to my own family. Even the little boys scorn me. When I appear, they ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I'm nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity. For the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? That my words were recorded. That they were written on a scroll or, or inscribed with an iron tool on lead or, or engraved in a rock forever. I know my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and no one else. Oh, my heart yearns within me. everyone. How you doing? Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles to Job chapter 19. Job chapter 19. Just to, I have to ask the question about, you know, I just have to. How many of you think it's uh, 11.10? <laughs> the first service, we had a lot of people the first service. I'm pretty sure they were mixed up. Um, but uh, anyone forget the clock thing? No one's, com- no one's committing to that? I'm, I'm not judging. I'm just asking. I'm just curious. My wife changed the clocks about two in the afternoon. She's very excited about these days where she gets a little extra sleep. Uh, I also just want to say, uh, with Josh and Paige, man, I'm stoked that they're here. They are great. And I just want to give them a big round of applause. And um, I know know you guys got to go to middle school. Yeah, you got to go get to the middle schoolers. I was a middle school pastor for a number of years, and I had hair during that time. And, you know, I'm just saying. So thanks for being. Make sure you guys say hi to them when you get a chance. So they, they need to go and take care of those students. So anyway, okay. Well, uh, as many of you know, but just in case you don't, uh, we're in a series right now called Life in Utz. It's a study of Job uh, and his journey through suffering. And in case you've missed any of it, here's what we know about Job. We know that he was a wealthy man with a large family living in the ancient Near East. Uh, We know that he was devout. He was highly respected in his community. Uh, Job was morally upright. Uh, He avoided evil. Uh, He loved, worshipped, and served served God faithfully. But one day, all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, nearly everything Job had was taken away from him. Uh, Through a series of bizarre and tragic events, he lost his children, his possessions, his wealth, his health, and his status. And he had absolutely no idea why it happened. And as we've said all along, that's what makes his story so timeless. It's so relevant because often when suffering hits us, and especially when it hits us without warning, just out of nowhere, we too wrestle with that same question of why. Why this? Why that? Why him? Why her? Why now? Why me? Why me? 
And uh, here's the deal. Because suffering is uh, a universal reality, every, every human belief system has to face that question, the question of why, and offer, offer some kind of response. Uh, take, for example, Hinduism. Hin- Hinduism says it's really all a matter of balance. Every form of pain and suffering represents the outplay of karma, the principle by which all actions of the past are balanced by the events in the future. You know, do good and good things will happen to you. Do bad and you pay the consequences. Suffering occurs because a person deserves it. Buddhism says pain, pain is merely an illusion. It's an illusion we must uh, train ourselves to see through by way of hard work and self-denial. Islam uh, views suffering as the all-encompassing determination of Allah. The finger of God directs both good and evil. And to question that or to question question God himself is blasphemous. It's worthy of judgment. Total submission is the supreme ethic. That's what the word Islam means. It means uh, submission or surrender. And then, of course, there's secularism that goes a completely different route. Secularism says suffering, you know, suffering is not an illusion. It's not about karma. It's not about the finger of some deity directing good or evil or anything else. Nature is simply cruel. Suffering is what it is. It's the unfortunate byproduct of a universe driven by accidental, random processes with no meaning to any of it. Or as atheist well-known atheist Richard Dawkins puts it, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And we won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. There is no design. There is no purpose. There is no evil. There is no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Now, that's sort of my abbreviated summary of of belief systems and major worldviews. But here's the point. Christianity's position on and response to uh, suffering is different from all the others and is, I think, well illustrated uh, through Job's experience. And, and what his experience has taught us so far is that in the, in the face of inexplicable suffering, um, it's okay to grieve. It's okay to cry. You know, uh, it's, not, it's not unreasonable. It's not unbiblical, it's not unspiritual to just honestly express ourselves emotionally and spiritually. It's okay to, to question God without fear of, of uh, retribution. However, in our questioning, we need to avoid simple answers and with humility concede that there are things in this world, in this universe that we, we just we don't and can't fully comprehend. We can't. Life is extremely complicated physically, emotionally, socially, and spiritually. And so there are times, you know, uh, that we have to embrace that reality and the reality of not having all the answers. And yet through it all, as God's people, choose to acknowledge his love and grace in our lives and to trust him no matter what. And really, that's the choice that Job made. Remember, remember he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. In other words, he says, I realize everything I have in this life is not really mine. It's on loan from God. I didn't bring it in with me. I can't take it out with me. God has allowed me to, to have and enjoy so many wonderful things, all of them a measure of his grace. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And yet, 
Yet with that said, as you might imagine, uh, there were instances when Job just really struggled. You know, he, as we saw last week, in the midst of his pain and his confusion, there were moments when he said, it, it feels to me like God has abandoned me. And yet he knew it wasn't true. He knew that God was with him. And more than that, Job knew God loved him intensely. And so Job said, even if I die, he says, at some point, God, I know you will call to me, and from the grave, I will respond. I, I will respond. I will answer you. You long, you will long for the creature your hands have made. My offenses will be sealed up in a bag. You will cover over my sin. And as we noted, those amazing statements reflect Job's understanding, not only of who God is, but what he is graciously willing to do for the creatures his hands have made. In fact, Job has some other amazing uh, things to say, which I want to look at with you this morning, but first let's pray. So Father, we're grateful for the time that you've given us this morning. Thank you for all these friends, and uh, I pray that in the next few minutes, uh, you you would allow us to uh, have some focus. Uh, In our culture today, we're easily distracted people. There was a lot going on in our calendars, our schedules with our kids, with our friends, our families, and our work and, and school and all of these things, and they tend to you know, weigh heavy on our, on our minds. And I pray that no matter what's happening the rest of the day or this week, I pray that in the, the few minutes that we have before us, that you would remove any distractions from this place, from our hearts and minds, so that we might hear the truth, that we might hear from you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to what is essentially the midpoint of the book, uh, keep in mind that in the midst of his suffering, Job's wife and friends haven't been particularly helpful. Okay, they Remember, they've been telling him all along that he must have done something really bad to deserve all the pain that he was experiencing. As his friend Eliphaz said, who being innocent has ever perished You know, good people don't suffer. Job, he says, those who plow evil and sow trouble reap it. Obviously, you've done something awful, something sinful. God is judging you. If you want him off your back, figure it out and fix it. Two other guys he knew, uh, Zophar and Bildad, they tell him essentially the same thing. Yet all along, Job maintains his innocence. And at at one point, he said to, to to these guys, he says, look, you're all miserable comforters. Yeah, you guys are not helpful. All of you, not helpful. And that was, that was certainly true. And so at this point, Job is feeling quite alone and alienated. And in chapter 19, verse 2, in regard to these friends, he says, you know, how long will you torment me and crush me with your words? He says, you guys are brutal, man. Ten times you've reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. He says, if it's true that I've gone astray, my error remains my concern alone, not yours. If indeed you'd exalt yourselves over me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Translation, he says, because I'm suffering, you guys keep accusing me of some some heinous sin. And then you position yourselves as moral superiors. But I'm telling you, God knows I have done nothing to deserve all this. It It seems like he has wronged me. And now he's isolated me. Job says, I'm praying, but man, nothing seems to be changing. I get no justice. He says, I don't really understand it, but it seems like like God's anger burns against me, as if all of a sudden he counts me among his enemies. And then Job begins to lament how everyone around him has abandoned him. He says, you know, he has alienated me from 
my family from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have gone away. My closest friends have forgotten me. My guests and female servants count me as a foreigner. They look on me as, a, as on a stranger. I summon my servant, but he doesn't answer, though I beg him with my own mouth. He doesn't answer. Now, what is, what is Job doing here? Well, as we've seen him do before, he's just being honest about what was happening, what, was, what he was experiencing, what was going on, how he was feeling about it all. And in this, in, in this instance, he's expressing the emotional pain of being left alone. His family, his friends, his guests, his servants, everybody was staying away from him. Why? Two reasons. Uh, first, Everybody knew about the bizarre and and tragic events that had taken place in Job's life. And so everybody viewed him as sort of the target of divine judgment. And no one wanted to be around him when and if the next freaky thing happened. You know, it's like like his friends didn't want to go golfing with him because they might get hit by lightning on the first tee. Uh, None of his extended family wanted to come over for, for dinner because a mighty wind might blow in from the desert and the house would collapse on them. Um, uh, none of his remaining servants wanted to be associated with him, thinking, you know, they might end up dead like all the rest. People in the community, man, they stayed away from him because rumor had it, get next to Job, and who, who knows what kind of crazy, inexplicable thing might happen. He might get run over by a stampede of insane goats or something. You know, who knows what might happen? Stay away from that dude. Everybody figured it was safer to stay clear, and they did. And then on, on top of that, making matters worse, Job was pretty sick, you know, and no doubt f- just physically repulsive. No one wanted to even look at him. His body was covered with, with, open, with boils and open sores from head to foot. He scratched himself with shards of pottery. Man, the dude was a mess. And, uh, I mean, notice what he says in verse 17. He says, my breath is offensive to my wife. She doesn't want anything to do with me. He says, I'm loathsome to my own family. Even the little boys scorn me. When I appear, they ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I am nothing but skin and bones. I've escaped only by the skin of my teeth. I mean, basically, Job admits he's gross. <laughs> he's, he's just physically decimated. He's barely holding on to life. His wife, his family, they find him disgusting. They stay away. Even little kids in the community showed no respect. Instead, they mocked him, which was a big deal in the ancient Near East where uh, it was a society in which children were taught to treat their elders with the highest level of respect, but they didn't with Job, at least not now. And so what it comes down to is Job, Job was not only experiencing physical pain, but he was experiencing the emotional and relational pain of being isolated from everyone around him. And for someone living in the collectivistic culture of the ancient Near East, that isolation was absolutely traumatic. Alone and and, and barely alive, Job says, Oh, oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. What does he mean? What is he saying? Well, again, Job is expressing himself. He's expressing his need. His need for someone to be with him, his need for someone to hear him, for someone to just listen to what he has to say and to love him and to believe his story. You see, the sad reality 
in all this was in the midst of his pain, the moment Job's wife and friends accuse him of some terrible sin and then claim that it was the cause of his suffering, essentially he was the cause of his own suffering, in many respects, it intensified Job's pain. It made things worse. Because to feel loved and cared for is really what someone who is hurting wants and what they need from friends and family, right? I mean, a a person wants to know that he or she is not alone. Um, They want to be listened to. But those closest to Job, man, they, they failed him through their reckless judgment and moralistic opinions. In terms of comforting him, they were... They were colossal failures. And Job was lamenting that. He was lamenting that loss. But no matter what, he wasn't willing to do what they were telling him to do. He refused to respond the way they wanted him to, as a moralist or a secularist. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, as a moralist, Job would have to admit that poverty, loss, sickness, or any unexpected trial or trauma in his life meant that he did something to upset God, you know, that he was messing up somehow, some way, somewhere. He wasn't being good enough. He wasn't praying enough, giving enough, serving enough. He needed to be a much better person. He needed to somehow muster, uh, muster up some more faith. And Job says, no, I'm not. He says, no, man, I'm not buying into that. I don't, I don't believe my relationship to God is a quid pro quo arrangement. And so he rejects moralism. He also rejects secularism. He refused to curse God and to not deny God's very existence and just suck it up and admit that life is meaningless and then just kind of, you know, spew rage against the cruelty of it all as his life slipped away. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Dylan Thomas. He was a well-known Welsh poet whose father was just a staunch atheist. And on the day his father lay dying, Thomas wrote his most famous poem encouraging his his dad to just let the fury out, man, let it out, rage against it all. And he wrote these famous words. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And if you think about it, really, what other option does secularism offer except rage against the cruelty of a meaningless existence? But understand, man, Job, Job wouldn't do it. He would not deny God. He would not rage against him. Neither would he concede that God was getting even with him for some moral failure. But yet Job was, he was incredibly discouraged. He was overwhelmed with a, with a sense of isolation. His family, his friends were nowhere to be found, certainly weren't listening to him. And, and for him, it was as if God wasn't listening either. Remember, he says this. He says, he goes, it's, it's like God has wronged me. Though I cry violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. And it's interesting because Job uses uh, ancient legal terminology here to say it seems that God has made some kind of mistake and he has rendered an unjust decision against me without giving me a hearing, a fair hearing. Here's my Ray K translation. No one is listening to me, he says. Not even God. A few years ago, journalist Richard Cohen wrote a New York Times bestseller titled Strong at, at the Broken Places. I don't know if you've ever, any of you have ever read it. But in the book, it's interesting, he chronicles the life and suffering of five individuals uh, who he refers to as citizens of sickness, um, each of them dealing with a different chronic disability or disease. 
And based on his observation, based on his relationship with them, based on their experience, he press, in the book, he presses the idea that more than anything else, what makes suffering so hard, what makes it so unbearable, is the feeling of being alone. Of being alone. And yet, in his final analysis, Cohen writes, but in the end, no matter who surrounds us, we travel alone. Our friends and loved ones are there providing an infrastructure of love and support, but courage must be drawn from within. And, you know, to a certain degree, Cohen is right. I mean, suffering can be a very lonely, isolating ordeal. Even when there's a lot of people around us, it feels we feel alone. And so it demands we find some interpersonal strength and courage to endure. But I don't know. It seems to me that at some point or another, we need, we need, to, we need to have hope in something outside ourselves. Now you think of Job. Job was a pretty strong, courageous guy, and yet he realized, alone in his suffering, he needed more than just inner strength and courage. You know, he needed, he needed hope beyond his friends, beyond his family, beyond himself. And so where did Job find that hope, and what did Job place that hope? Well, he found it, and he placed it in God, who does way more than listen. Check out verse 25, where Job makes this famous declaration. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end, he will stand upon the earth. Now, this is a, uh, this is a fascinating statement that biblical scholars and theologians have been writing about and comment, uh, commenting on for a long, long time. So let me, let me give you my Ray K. summary. The term <clears throat> that we translate Redeemer here is, is quite significant. It's the Hebrew term goel which in the, in the ancient world referred to a righteous kinsman, in other words, a near relative, who would come to a person's aid, you know, come to deliver them from troubling circumstances or to bring about justice uh, in the face of injustice or to restore their rights. For example, uh, if an individual lost property or lost an inheritance because of personal debt, the goel would come and graciously redeem uh, buy, you know, buy back that inheritance for them. Uh, and out, if, if out of desperation a person, let's say, sold him or herself into slavery, the goel would come and set them free, again, by paying off their debt. Uh, if, if, or if a person was killed, the goel would come to bring justice, the payment of life for life. And, and so the term goel can be translated a number of different ways. It could be translated deliverer, avenger, rescuer, or redeemer. And often in the Old Testament, especially in places like <clears throat> Exodus and especially the Psalms and the prophets, God himself is referred to as his people's near kin, Goel Yisrael, you know, the deliverer, the avenger, the rescuer, the redeemer of Israel. And so with Job, here's where things get interesting because you know, on one hand, Goel meant family member, right? But, but Job just said all of his family had abandoned him. No one was around. No relative was coming to deliver him. Yet he declares, I know my Goel, my Redeemer, lives. What is he saying? Well, he's saying that although he, he's been abandoned by, by everyone around him, including all of his family, and at times he feels as if God has wrongly judged him, that he knows he has a Goel, a Redeemer, who will deliver him and bring about justice. 
For Job, his redeemer is God himself. But do you see the problem with that? I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe that's overstating it. You see the challenge in that, the complexity of that? Because think about it. Here in chapter 19, Job says, It seems God has judged me, but my goel will come and stand up for me, justify me, deliver me, rescue, rescue me, and redeem me. You follow, you follow his reasoning? I mean, somehow, in some way, in Job's mind, he believes God is, is both utterly against him while at the same time utterly for him. That God is both his judge and his redeemer. In fact, he says, I know my Goel, God my redeemer, lives. And in the end, he will stand on the earth. And again, this is legal language. The Hebrew term stand here carries the idea of advocacy. He says, my redeemer will come and stand on the earth as my divine legal advocate. And like I told you last week, man, I, I can't. I can't explain this, but Job seems to have a a, a prophetic understanding of who God is, righteous judge in heaven, as well as gracious redeemer who comes and stands on the earth to do for him, to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. I mean, Job's words anticipate incarnation, resurrection, life. Do you see who his comments point to? I mean, r- remarkably, they, they, they point to Jesus. Deity in the flesh, come in the flesh to stand as our legal advocate. He is our divine goel, our kinsman redeemer who secures our inheritance, who buys us back, who sets us free, who pays our death, life for life. He would be abandoned in his suffering so we would never be abandoned in ours put to death on the cross so we might be delivered from death. Jesus himself put it this way, the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and and to give his life as a ransom for many. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, in him we have what? We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin uh, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Here's the point. Job had hope. He had hope in God who doesn't only listen, but who who both judges and graciously redeems. In fact, so confident of this was Job, so confident in the grace of God to redeem him that he says in verse 26, after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. You know, just as he did in chapter 14, Job says, even if, I, even if my suffering kills me, even if it puts me in the grave, even if it destroys my body, my physical resurrection will come. God will call. And from the grave, I will answer. I'll be transformed. I'll be resurrected. I will live again, and I will see God. I will see him. In fact, in his suffering, that seems to be Job's longing. I mean, with a sense of anticipation, he says, I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Well, let me tell you something. You know, the more I study this, this ancient text called Job, the more I realize that, you know, it's, it's not just about a man who suffers. It's about so much more than that. It's about the God who created us with his own hands and who loves us intensely, who graciously forgives and covers our sin, 
the God who is both judge and redeemer. It's about incarnation. It's about resurrection. It's about life beyond the grave. It's about Jesus, our Goel, our divine deliverer. And so it's about hope. I'm reading this book. It was published just this month. came out just a couple weeks ago by Ravi Zacharias and Vince Vital. Both are, both are Christian kind of philosophers, theologians, apologists. And the book is entitled, Why Suffering? Subtitled, Finding Meaning and Comfort When Life Doesn't Make Sense. And you know, these guys, are, <clears throat> these guys are very, very bright, educated men who do a far better job than me taking on the question of why. And one of the things that Zacharias points out is something, something that I said earlier that, you know, in comparison with other world religions, other belief systems and worldviews, the Christian response to pain and hardship is, is, is highly distinctive. He says, the cross is the key to a compelling and rational explanation for trusting in God in the face of suffering. Why? Because in Jesus, deity, deity comes and suffers with us and suffers for us. No other religion makes any such radical claim. And then Zacharias offers this observation that I've never, I, gotta, I tell you, I've never thought of it before, but it just struck me as so profound. He says, Life and death on its own does not bring hope. Only grace brings hope. I know of no grace as extravagant as the grace of Jesus Christ and as grace upon grace because Jesus has already done everything necessary for us to be right with God. This greatest of all hopes can be received with a simple, heartfelt prayer. And you know, when you think about it, what, that's really kind of what Job did, right? And I mean, in a simple, heartfelt prayer of faith and the grace of God, he said, man, I know, I know my Redeemer lives. And because it's true, he says, my sins will be covered over. I will be redeemed. I will live again. I will see God. That's what Job believed. Do you believe that? I mean, do you? Have you ever prayed that kind of simple, heartfelt prayer of faith? Um, if not, perhaps the time has come to do so because here's the good news. Your Redeemer lives. And in the midst of suffering, only the grace of God in Jesus brings us true and lasting hope. Let's pray together. Our Father, this morning we... Um, we confess to you that you are God, the creator of all things, our creator. You are God and we are not. And in our limited understanding, there are times where we cannot possibly comprehend the what and the why of what happens around us. And we struggle, we struggle wanting to know. Uh, but in the end, Lord, we recognize that, um, that you know what you're doing. And even when we question and even when we complain and we cry, and that, um, that's okay. And I ask, Lord, that um, you would help us gain some hope even today in the knowledge that our Redeemer lives, our kinsman, the Goel has come to free us, to buy us back, to pay our debt, to give his life for ours. 
that we might have life. And we're grateful for him. We're grateful for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So, you know, here's the deal. For some of you, um, this, is, this is something that you've, you've come to understand and you've, you've made a commitment to God before and, and you're all in with that. And, but maybe if today was the first time you ever said to God, I believe that my Redeemer lives and that I will live again and I will see you face to face because you will cover my sin. The Redeemer has come. If this is the first time you've ever prayed that and really meant it, let me know, man. Sign it on a card. Drop it by the, by the guest table. Send me an email or something. Just, and allow that to be sort of a, the defining marks or the peg in the ground where you can say, yeah, I've made that choice. I've made that decision. It's an important thing to do. And maybe you're here and you're still kind of wrestling with this whole Christian thing. It's just really important you understand that religion is one thing. It'll beat you down. It'll wear you out. There is no rest because you never, when you, you never know when you've been good enough. That's why people walk away from religion. Christianity says, no, no, it's not about your works. It's about the grace of God. Remember, Jesus said, come, all to, all, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. He was talking to a culture of religion. He said, come to me, you are, who are worn out by the ritual and the works. Come to me, and I'll give you rest, because it's not about what you can do. For me, it's about what I'm going to do for you. It's about the love and grace of God, the redemption that comes through him. That's what it means to be a Christian. I hope you understand that.